the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? If you find value in this podcast, please give us a high rating on iTunes and connect via Twitter at James Strzok or via our website, servetolead.org. With us today is a longtime friend and a popular, highly regarded commentator on politics and culture, Matt Lewis. You may know Matt from CNN and other networks or from his excellent podcast, Matt Lewis and the News. Matt Lewis, welcome to Serve to Lead. Hey, Jim, good to be here. Matt, if memory serves, we met almost two decades ago at this point, and we were brought together like so many other Americans in various ways by President Reagan. I was interested to start, what is your view on President Reagan 20 years later? Well, I think he's the greatest president of my lifetime. Um, He's definitely a top two or three, maybe presidents of all time. I hold him in very high regard. You know, you could you could you could make you could quibble maybe top five. I'm a fan. I just say I'm a fan. And it was your book, your great book, Reagan on Leadership, that I read years ago that really inspired me. And I think I had written something about it and praised it, never thinking the author would uh, would even notice or know who I am. And and you reached out and thanked me. And I think that started our we started emailing and and now we're like friends in real life, as they say. Uh, IRL. (laughs) Well, President Reagan brought a lot of people together. Let me ask you this, Matt. A lot of people think today, some say that, well, President Reagan, that's a vanished era, a lost age. The median age of voters now is about, what, early 40s. So people who first voted for President Reagan are now in the older group of voters. And so given all that, what can people learn from him today, both on policy and in a leadership way? Are there lessons particularly for conservatives or Republicans, but also for others? Well, I mean, first, I would say I think it's a mistake to obsess over the past and that nostalgia can be a bad thing. But I also think it's important to have heroes and 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 to look to great men and women of of history and Reagan certainly qualifies. And um, yeah, I, I think that there are, there are a, t- a lot of lessons. We could go through Reagan on leadership, um, but there's so many. Uh, one is just fo- what you focus on. You know, Reagan came into office and there were a lot of things that needed addressing in the late 1970s and early 1980s, but he prioritized. And uh, I think that really mattered. A couple big things, including beating the Soviet Union, which, of course, we did when the Cold War ended. Um, I also think that Reagan uh, was a great delegator, which maybe got him into some trouble with Iran-Contra and could have been very dangerous for his legacy. But also, uh, when he had his team in place, the, the original team really made him very efficient and effective. So... 
I think that if you want to be effective at, at your life and your business and in your career, um, you need to study other people who have been successful. And and I think in politics in the modern era, Reagan's in a pretty elite group. And of course, Reagan looked very strongly toward the example of Franklin Roosevelt on how to be president, not, of course, on the exact policies, although he always uh, felt that his four votes for Franklin Roosevelt were justified. Now, one of the big changes, perhaps, or this is a question really for you, is when Reagan was president, it was clear what it meant to be conservative. It meant, as you say, fighting the Soviet Union, in his case, bringing it down. It meant cutting taxes and regulation at home, and it meant a focus on traditional values. What does it mean to be a conservative today? Well, on one hand, I think you could argue that conservatism is a timeless tradition, you know, that goes back to Aristotle or something, and therefore it's it's alive and well, and it doesn't matter what the current White House occupant says or thinks, it exists because it's basically always been there. Um, other people, I think, would argue that that it's a very it's a relative term. What are you trying to conserve? And that yesterday, you know, today's conservative uh, is conserving what used to be a liberal idea. So it gets very confusing. It can become a game of semantics. And certainly, I think our current president and the current era. Uh, have made it more complicated. Things like tariffs, for example, that once upon a time conservatives believed in them, and then we went through a generation or so where conservatives didn't believe in tariffs, and now they're back with Donald Trump. It, it does get a little bit confusing. So does conservatism have enduring values or ideals that can be translated into programs, or is it basically a reactive temperament or a reactive politics? Well, there certainly is a reactionary side of conservatism that is really uh, back in a big way. Maybe it never fully left, but but that's not really how I think of conservatism. I think of it more like in a tradition of, of Edmund Burke and um, Chesterton, people like that. You know, there's the, uh, the line, a, a man stumbles upon... Um, a stone fence in the wilderness. And a conservative says, well, maybe there's a reason that fence is there. Maybe let's not tear that down until we know why. And so essentially there's a belief that, and I recommend Jonah Goldberg's uh, new book for this one, but there's a, a sense that I have, and I think that a lot of conservatives have, that that what we have in Western civilization and this American experiment is really a miracle that it defies nature, that nature is red of tooth and claw, and that we have created this, this civilization where we do not um, follow our base instincts all the time. We have the rule of law, we have institutions, and conservatism is about preserving those institutions. And the opposite would be kind of a radical progressivism, which wants to uproot those traditions without really thinking through why they were there in the first place. And, and this radical impulse, I think, is present on the left and the right today, actually. Well, you mentioned President Trump. Is he a conservative in your view? 
in my view, he is not a he is not a conservative by my definition of what of that Burkean sense of being a conservative. But um, words mean what people think they mean, and you know, nine out of ten experts I think would say that he's a, a right winger, even though. <laughs> Even though if you were to go down like a litmus test of what a conservative is supposed to believe in, especially if you had made that litmus test 10 years ago, I would be probably much more conservative by that standard than he is. So are you concerned that the Republican Party appears, and granted both of the legacy parties have decomposed to a great extent, so they're not mirrors of as much of the public as they used to be. But putting that to the side... The Republican Party is, by all polls, very strongly invested in President Trump at this point. And of course, he was much, much closer to actual Republican voters' views in 2016 than that entire range of alternative establishment candidates. So where does that leave Matt Lewis as a Republican? Well, I mean, I would say I would say a few things about that. One, I'm not convinced that all the voters who supported Trump embraced his political policy. I don't even know that he has a coherent political worldview, right? So it's hard to say that all those voters embraced his program and therefore were not that conservative. Um, I think that certainly they were not prioritizing ideology and philosophy, but I think probably his his temperament and his um, his demeanor and the fact that he's a fighter that is what they liked most about Donald Trump, I think. Um, but having said that, it's clear that that it's it is Trump's party, and this brings us to like an interesting kind of leadership question about you know at the like at the macro level, it really matters what happens in America. It really matters to the conservative brand and the Republican brand and all that. But just at the micro level thinking of myself and how I navigate these waters and how I behave has been very difficult um, because, you know, I am um, I'm sort of I'm sort of wedded to the old ways. Um, and, and anytime there's a technological shift or a paradigm shift, people who are invested in the old ways have almost a perverse incentive to double to, to sort of fight things that are to fight change. And I don't want to fight change just for the for the sake of fighting change. And I, and I think in order for me to remain relevant, for me to continue being of service to my listeners and my readers, I had to try to, to figure out how I'm going to behave. And are there things where I was wrong, where I needed to reevaluate and rethink things? But conversely, are there things that are going to be unpopular that I need to actually be stubborn about and not not just go with the flow. Um, and, and that's a difficult thing to, to figure, to discern the difference between holding on to things uh, out of nostalgia or just out of convenience versus holding on to, to principles that are really are timeless. So what are some examples where you've dealt with that and where you've had greater success or where you're not as sure you've quite found the way yet forward? So... In some ways, I think about politics as being like if we were trying to get to um, to Nebraska and we're in Virginia, the answer would be you got to go west, young man. Um, and you could therefore you could therefore sort of uh, 
say, well, the, the key is always to go west. You're always got to go west. Well, but what if you're in Arizona? Now, now going west would put you in the wrong direction. And, and so uh, there are certain things in politics that are relative and that uh, context matters. Um, but on the other hand, there are things that I do think are timeless. And so for, to me, when it comes, wasn't there a Thomas Jefferson quote that was like, on issues of taste, always go with the times, on issues of character? Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, terribly misquoting this or paraphrasing it. But, but to me, I mean, certainly things that have to do with integrity and character are kind of no brainers. And so that would be one area where I've, I've tried to be consistent and not be relative. Um, but then I think there are other issues that are a little more complicated, right? So like, let's take the China tariffs, for example. I think you could certainly make a, a really good economic argument that tariff tariffs are bad and that trade wars are, are not good, uh, that the American consumer will be the one who pays for it, that it's basically a tax. All of those things I think are empirically true um, but I think you could also make an argument that there's a larger cause, which is a national security cause uh, having to do with China. And, and so maybe it's more complicated than than free marketers might might think. I'm trying I try to be open minded without without being um, too open minded. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's very interesting. I mean, you're a Gen Xer, as mentioned earlier, and you're on the sort of a later end of it. So you're in shouting distance of what Eliza Schlesinger calls the elder millennials. So if you were to talk to a 20 year old today, or if you thought of yourself as 20 years old, an age when most people get a political identity that is quite enduring, what do you suppose your politics would be? Well, I have to be honest with you. I think that, I mean, there's so many ways of, of uh, so many caveats to this question, but if if the Matt Lewis, like let's say the Matt Lewis that was in the late 1990s, if you could just beam him to the modern era, he'd probably be wearing a MAGA hat, actually. Um, I think that I would have gotten caught up in in the excitement and the tribalism of Trump. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I suspect that I would have, you know, I started off much more just as sort of an, uh, instinctual conservative. I, I didn't bother reading that much or, or really learning that much about political philosophy. My dad was a prison guard in Hagerstown, Maryland for about 30 years. And, uh, and he was a very nice guy, a very good guy. And he, he took me to the polls in 1980 when he voted for Reagan. I think I was like six years old. And he told me why it was important. And then in 1988, he got me listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I was very much kind of a team player. Um, and then, you know, I worked at the Leadership Institute and, and ran campaigns. That was my former life. And I was very much interested in strategy and tactics and how to win. Um, and really, it was it was later later in life that I started reading and learning about policy and philosophy um, and ideas. And and there was a time, there was a decade or so where um, where the things I believed um, because of my 
experience and because of my faith and because of my politics and because of what I was now learning about ideas where that really was very consistent and it, and it really it was very coherent and I was very comfortable with um, with being a conservative and now it's just been the last couple of years where look I don't want to say it's mutually exclusive but it, there's a lot more tension between the different hats that I wear right now. So are you saying that you've become more moderate? Is that a fair understanding of your point? Well, again, I hate, I, I don't, I know it's as, as someone who interviews people, it's deeply unsatisfying when you can't get an answer, but you know, I think I'm, you know, Reagan said, I didn't leave the party. The party left me. I, I pretty much believe most of the same things that I believed 10 years ago when I was a right-wing nut job. Um, but the difference is that, number one, what constitutes as conservative has changed. Things it's, have, you know, things have gone in and out of style. And I also think that, that my temperament, which is, which actually is temperamentally conservative in the sense that it's temperamentally moderate, is really at odds with the temperament and the conservative movement today, which is very, I would say, radical. I would say reactionary. Um, I think that the Republican Party and the conservative movement today is not terribly conservative in the Burkean sense and in the temperamental sense that that they are much more reactionary and maybe right wing is a better word than conservative. Well, there's been a lot of talk lately, ranging from David Brooks to the new Niskanen Center and many others about the virtue of moderation. How do you react to that? Well, this is actually something I've I've been interviewing people on my podcast and talking to them about. And, and I've had talks with um, recently with Bridget Phetasy and Jamie Kilstein and uh, Christina Hoff Summers um, and Danielle Crittenden just to name a few people where I've had this discussion. And I think the problem is the word moderate conjures up, uh, uh, it's a pejorative term, you know, it sort of is, as Rush Limbaugh says, uh, I'm still waiting for that book, Great Moderates in American History. <laughs> I mean, if a, if a moderate is someone who's like kind of wishy-washy on everything, then, um, then, then that's not what I am or what I want to be. But I think that you can have very strong beliefs um, and but also be in favor of civility and liberal democracy and and that that that, that is that is fine. I think I think I'm in the Reagan space. I mean, there, there's a part of Reagan that I think was very, very populist and certainly he was seen at the time um, as as an extremist, he was certainly portrayed that way. But there was a side of Reagan that was very, and this, maybe this goes back to FDR being his hero, that was very ironic and that his rhetoric was very inclusive and uplifting and inspiring. And I mean, I don't think that makes him a moderate, but, but nowadays in the Trump era, maybe that would. Let me try something for your guidance. I, I was thinking about this in respect of you and there are at least three ways I hear the term moderate used. Well, four. The first is as an adjective, as you said, a modifier. And that's not what anybody wants. You don't want Aaron to say, well, I'm moderately in love with Matt. I mean, th these are not good 
It's just bad on its face. On the other hand, it often means to split the middle. And the problem with that in politics, of course, is other people are defining then the overall course. You're not really adding value to the movement. Third is as an independent, saying that means you're separated altogether from the debate. In effect, you're rejecting the options before you or the interest groups that are producing those options. But finally, I think there's another aspect of it that people may think about and, and not recognize what's changed. And that is perhaps moderates are the people who care for the institutions themselves. I mean, one thing we see today that's very different over the past century is that after World War II, and we're now celebrating the 75th anniversary of D-Day, so this is on everyone's mind this year, uh, the people of all parties that came back, the veterans who were elected in 1946, like Kennedy and Nixon and many more, they had seen something a lot more important than party politics. And they knew the stakes. The whole country knew the stakes. And there was always great care for the institutions themselves in a way that one wonders uh, if it's been lost in today's Democrats and Republicans. What do you think? Well, first of all, thank you uh, for for helping uh, me think that through or actually for you thinking it through and me stealing it because <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. Um, I think you nailed it. Um, and I think that the last two things are what I want to be and what I think I am. I, I think I'm sort of a contrarian and an independent. Like, I don't really even consider myself a Republican. I do think, and David Frum said this first, I think I am conservative. I'm not sure if I'm still a conservative, but I am conservative. But, but I reflexively um, sort of reject tribalism and... Um, you know, joining with the crowd. And so independent, I think, is 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 a thing I agree with. And then the institutionalist thing, I think, is one of the things that separates me. And this this actually goes back to my definition of conservative. You know, anyone who believes in that Burkean philosophy that that basically says what we have here in America is a miracle and um and that that civilization is tenuous and we need to be very protective and guard and guard the blessings that we have would believe in institutions and look that doesn't mean you can't reform things it doesn't mean you can't tear down the fence if you find it in the wilderness you just should figure out why is it there and why was it put there to begin with right and that's an institution that's an institutionalist and i think that there are a lot of people on the right and the left today who don't really care about institutions I don't think they realize how precious what we have is. We're very lucky. The fact that people aren't coming to rape and murder me and pillage me right now is a triumph. And it's it's a weird part of history. It, it's, it's not a norm in history. Um, the fact that, you know, there aren't marauding burglars in this country. Uh, we really need to appreciate that and be very careful, I think, about wanting to tear down things before we think it through. Well, in a related vein, how do you think about this current discussion that's occurring on the right as well as the left about civility and political discord? I mean, there's a lot of people who are active in politics, say the types that you find very much clustered on Twitter, who implicitly or explicitly reject civility. They argue it's weak, it's inappropriate, and so on. Then others try to say, no, it's very important to protect these institutions 
through norms that allow us to remain together. And civility is not a matter of you have to like everybody you're disagreeing with, but it's having certain rules that remove the personal to get to the principle, that move things out of a question of power to questions of persuasion and reason. Where do you come out? Yeah, I mean, just think about it in normal life. I mean, take politics out of it. If you want to get along in society, you hold doors for other people. You say thank you. you that's the glue. And that keeps us from falling apart and, and regressing into barbarism. To, to some level, we're <laughs> society is very, you know, I, I saw the other day Gmail went down and there were people, uh, because Google went down, people who couldn't get in their house because somehow they had like given their security system and <laughs> their door locks over to the cloud or something. And it shows you how like, what a thin line, <laughs> how thin civilization, but we are between civilization and, and, uh, and the middle ages. And I think civility is one of those things. Now look, I think that there's also a fakeness. Um, and there, there could be people who are, are weak need. My theory, I don't know, Jim, I don't know if you've seen the movie roadhouse, but it's a, it's a friggin' no. classic. It's a classic. Um, Starring Patrick Swayze. It, it's it's such a great movie because it's so bad. But Patrick Swayze is a bouncer. And uh, he is hired to clean up this bar called the Double Deuce. And um, and there's a scene, uh, my favorite scene actually, is where uh, Patrick Swayze gathers all the bouncers and gives them a little pep speech before the bar reopens. And he says, you know, if someone is starting trouble in the bar tomorrow night or tonight, uh, I want you to go up and I want you to ask him to leave. But I want you to be nice. And then uh, if they won't uh, walk, then you will walk them and you will be nice. And if you're not big enough to walk them, then one of the other bouncers will come over and he will assist you and you will both be nice. And at the end, Swayze says you will be nice until it's time to not be nice. And that's kind of my rule for politics. Like, I think you can be tough and and also be nice. It doesn't really cost you anything. You don't have just because you are polite doesn't mean that you're a pansy at all. I try to really go almost to the extreme of being um, incredibly tough and stubborn and also being incredibly nice and friendly and polite as I'm doing. And um, I don't I don't think that's too hard, too much to ask. Well, although Winston Churchill didn't always follow his own advice in this respect, and he said a number of things that were so politically incorrect by today's standards and were outrageous even then that one has to bear that in mind. But he also said memorably that it costs nothing to be polite when you have to kill a person. And maybe that, that's exact. <laughs> I, I was going to say speak softly and carry a big stick by TR. But I, but I think you're actually closer to my sentiment than I, than I was. Yeah. And President Reagan surely exemplified that, as did Franklin Roosevelt as well. They both use charm and humor to deadly effect against adversaries, but in a way that you couldn't say was hateful or dismiss as, quote, personal. So one of my theories is that the only politician who can get away with being a moderate is someone who is sort of a, a superstar. Because... If you're trying to like, if you're trying to make a name for yourself, you have to like, 
you have to gin up some sort of controversy and um, or interest. You, you, you need to be interesting. And, and people who aren't dynamic figures, like if you're not famous or you're not a super compelling, charismatic person, then the easiest way to do it is to be outrageous. And so I think in a way it's the last refuge of a, a scoundrel kind of thing. Um, but it, if we get a moderate president, and by moderate I mean in a good way, not not in the not in the weak need way, but but if we get a centrist, serious, thoughtful president, it will probably have to be someone who is very charismatic or famous. I think. So let's. Go a little further on that. If you look back at the 2016 election in terms of archetypes, on the one hand, for Hillary Clinton, we had a person who perhaps brought to mind sort of the annoying student in school who always raised their hand first and kind of uh, thought that sort of used rules as a weapon and very humorless and self-involved. And on the other hand, with Donald Trump, you had somebody who was pretty outrageous, rejected everything. You wouldn't want to rely on him for much in, in, by this archetype. But of the two, people said, you know what? I'm going to go with that one despite everything. What do we learn from that? Well, I think politics um, is more primal now than it was a few years ago. I think that, um, look, if you went into a middle school, Let's say you're a middle schooler and you got trained. You went into a middle school class. You could size people up almost instantly. This kid is cool. He's this is a quarterback. This girl is cool. Uh, and then here's the victim. This other person over here. This is the person I can tease and get away with, and 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 it's going to work, right? You could size them up pretty quick. Donald Trump is a master at this, and so I think like Elizabeth Warren, for example, is a classic victim of Trump. Like she is the kid in the middle school that Trump will look at and immediately know that he could pick on her. And then I think there are people like Biden and Buttigieg who for very different reasons are more like the cool kids in class that, that, that he can't look, he's going to try. Don't get me wrong. He will always try, but it won't be as easy as what he did um, to people like Hillary Clinton and a lot of, and 16 Republicans or however many, 18 Republicans, however many he took down. So looking forward, what's your take on 2020 at this point? Well, I think if I had to bet that I would bet that um, that Trump, if I had to bet, see, this is very close. It, it, it's I think it's a jump ball. But if I had to bet, I think I bet on Trump getting reelected. Um. But I think if Joe Biden's the nominee, and it looks right now good for him, you, you can make it. You can make a compelling case that that look, Donald Trump won three states by eighty thousand votes, and Joe Biden's going to be a hell of a lot better in those three states than Hillary Clinton, and um, and so I think it's a very I think it a very competitive race. In the short term in 2020, my long term concerns about the Republican Party are just demographic death and, and the possibility that Trumpism, not just Trump, but the concept of Trump effectively traded the Southwest and maybe even Texas for 
for the Rust Belt. It's possible that Trump will lose Texas, even in 2020. And if that happens, it's game over. So let's go, let's stay on this a minute. So in as you mentioned in 2018, the 2016, the Republicans had what was then an extraordinary number of candidates, over a dozen, and many Republicans, at least so they said publicly, thought it was a spectacularly talented group. Yet if you talk to people outside and you don't live in Washington and you're not a partisan, it was almost the opposite view. People were like, wow, if they think that's a good group, who are they listening to? They're not talking to me. And Trump saw this. Now, the 2020, we see something like that on the Democratic side, arguably, too, where many Democrats seem convinced they've got a spectacularly talented group of people to take on this unusual and potentially vulnerable president. Yet many on the outside are more than unimpressed. What's going on about this? Is this because the parties have become so small that the partisans and those connected, say, directly to political machinery are just so far removed from general point of view in a time when the biggest group by far in the voters are self-identified independents or is something else going on? I mean, I think there's definitely a reordering that took place and it happens. You know, it happened with the Industrial Revolution. Every time there's a technological revolution um, then there's also a political reordering that that follows. And I think what you have is that there's a um, that politicians are lagging indicators in some regards, especially establishment politicians. And so the people who are elected when the change happens are the last to get the memo. And they are wedded to just like me. They've got the same problem I do, that that they have assumptions that may or may not be true anymore. I mean, I, Jim, you know, I used to go around the country helping teach people how to win campaigns. And I read books, a lot of books about how to win campaigns. Um, and you become wedded to these ideas and it almost, almost becomes moral. Like there's a right way and a wrong way to win. And so when Donald Trump shows up and does everything wrong, doesn't do anything he's supposed to do, according to your checklist of how to win a campaign, it's almost um, a slap in the face. If you're, you're kind of invested in his failure, you have to be careful that that doesn't color your opinion of him as well as your analysis um, of his chances. But I, I think that some of these politicians, because they were in politics before this, this era, before the Trump era, they are a little bit out of touch with the zeitgeist. The one exception right now, um, well, the two exceptions uh, are, I think, Joe Biden, who's always been out of touch. And uh, it's weird. The world is actually <laughs> the way Joe Biden used to be a joke. I mean, he ran for president three times, I think, and didn't get anywhere. Um, and now the now he is suddenly in vogue. He didn't change. The world caught up with him. And then I think that Pete Buttigieg, by virtue of just being a, a terrific political athlete, and maybe because he's a little younger, I'm not sure. But for whatever reason, I think that this process has benefited him, has demonstrated that he is, you know, a rising star. But but yeah, for a lot of them, the Elizabeth Warrens and and, and many of them, they are um, they're out of touch with with the kids today. But let's look at to your point to history. If you look back to Lincoln, who came in as a third party candidate, right? 
and a time of immense technological as well as political change. You had McKinley Roosevelt in a time much like today in some ways, at the turn of the 20th century, and tremendous change in political communication, even greater than what Lincoln was dealing with. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who again, totally reordered politics and used communications as an extraordinary part of that. And of course, Reagan, similar. Now you look today, Trump versus Clinton, or Trump versus Biden, I, I think it might be a fair question that many people have, why aren't we getting people who are closer to the high level of events we're facing at a moment when there's a generation of fiscal insolvency under all political parties at a time when the United States has a degree of commitments worldwide that by any objective indicator need to be revisited while they can be done in a position of strength um, here at home, bringing people back together and dealing with the most basic infrastructure and reorganization of law and government and so on, why can't we get people in this immensely talented 300 million person country who are higher to the level of events? Or are we simply not recognizing that, say, Trump and Clinton are Lincoln-esque? That's a really tough question. Um, I think there are different possibilities. I think that that um, one one option is that politics has become uh, not has become uninviting for smart people. Why why would you know if you're self interested, right? And so part of this might be people used to be more uh, they people used to put the country first. But if you're the best and brightest. Do you want to go into government today? And do you want to run for office and have everybody digging through uh, what you said in 1982 or something? You, digging through your Twitter timeline from 10 years ago? Maybe not, right? It also may be that the system has gotten to a point where uh, it is actually corrupting good people or or rendering good people that might have been effective in a different era ineffective or impotent today. Um, or it may be that we're, we're nostalgic and, and we think, you know, we want to look back at how great things used to be, but maybe things really weren't all that great in the past. And maybe some of these leaders weren't all that great either. I mean, some, some of their sins were certainly not exposed. They didn't have the same media attention, media scrutiny. Um, and, you know, maybe someone will arise. And part of the history of America has been at the right moment when we really need somebody, they show up on the scene. So um, that's me being optimistic at, at the end. Matt, one of the issues one thinks about that's different today to your historical point is the fact that we have this totally in-depth social media. We have Twitter. We have phone apps. We now have the first voters coming in this year who grew up in the age of the iPhone. And this has got to be the golden age of negative uh, investigations of anybody, beginning with politicians. How are we gonna break out of this? Are we gonna have our whole culture uh, divided up and losing talent in all sorts of public roles indefinitely? Yeah, and I mean, there's all sorts of stuff happening like the Me Too moment and um, cancel culture and all that. And I mean, obviously some of this stuff some is, is good, right? It's good that we, 
it's good that people who maybe have been discriminated against or abused are now, you know, able to get some sort of justice. Like that's a good thing. But by the same token, um, I think we need to, to look if someone commits a, a crime or something, that's a different story. But but by and large, I, I think we need to put things in context and 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 maybe have some um, some grace or a statute of limitations, right? Like we haven't had this this internet culture long enough to kind of deal with it and let things smooth out. But at some point, I think it's gonna we're gonna have to get to a point where if someone you know, if someone like, well, okay, look, look right now, Kim Kardashian is famous because she did a porn video. And yet she's doing some pretty amazing things in, in criminal justice reform and arguably is, um, is, is one of the most effective activists on behalf of justice in the world today. And so maybe we get to a point where, you know, if you did, you tweeted something stupid, you know, we're not going to hold that against you for the rest of your life. I, I think that we need to figure out what the rules are. I got in trouble. I was on CNN um, in the wake of the Me Too thing. And I made that point. Like, I, look, there's a lot of obvious stuff that's just horrific and evil and, and illegal. And, and that's not what I'm talking about. There are other things, gray areas that in the past men were guilty of doing. And I think that there are a lot of men today who just actually don't really know what the rules are. And I think we're going to figure it out over. I hope we figure it out over time, because if, if the rules are, are more defined and understood and if we have some grace and forgiveness to get along with each other, um, we're, it's going to be easier to to have talented, good people be willing to um to go into the public sphere. It's hard to see how any enterprise, a small one, much less the government of the world's greatest power, can attract the necessary talent by making their worst moments the thing that everybody is focused on entirely. It just seems counterintuitive. You know, Bill, Bill Buckner, um, Bill, Bill Buckner just died a couple, what, a week ago, maybe the, uh, the Boston Red Sox, really great player, borderline Hall of Famer, but he was remembered for his first first sentence of his obituary is is the uh, uh, the Mookie Wilson dribbler down the first baseline that that went between his legs, and, and that's not really what we want. We don't want. To, I know I don't want to be defined by my worst moment. Well, on a more positive note compared to Buckner and that sort of poignant situation at his death, we have Tiger Woods, who has had an extraordinary comeback now. And hopefully maybe that could have some lessons yeah. beyond uh, his own life. Where were you Where were you a week ago when I should have written the Buckner Tiger Woods column? Well, you still can. <laughs> <laughs> well, nowadays, you have to understand, Jim, the shelf life is very, very uh the window closes very rapidly in, in terms of what works as a column. The, the yeah. days of like revisiting that story a week later uh, are kind of over unless you're maybe if you're Peggy Noonan and you have a weekly column at the Wall Street Journal. But but for those of us who are ham and eggers out there, 
we get we got to have that idea in the first couple hours. Well, and, and you're also becoming, if I might say, a cultural commentator. So perhaps you can do more of that than most people do. But let's go back to another thing you said. You talked about the system itself perhaps has gotten so jammed up that it's simply impossible to run it properly. And that brings to mind theories of the decline of countries, like from Francis Fukuyama, or I'm thinking particularly of Mansur Olson, the professor who at Maryland who had the theories about interest groups taking over countries, and he particularly was focused in the time uh, he was involved in the 20th century on Great Britain as an example. Do you think that's a problem here? Is our system simply become so accessible to interest groups of all types that representative government is jammed up, impossible to break through? I don't, this is what you're never allowed to say. I don't know. You this can is say not it here. Area, this is not an area of my expertise. I think that there have been times when people have been pessimistic. Like I know before, you know, I hate to keep going back to Reagan, but there were a lot of people saying before Reagan that the presidency was too big, too big a job for any one man, that maybe there needed to be dual presidents or, a, you know, one person could do the symbolic ceremonial stuff, you know, and then Reagan knocks it out of the park. And it turns out, no, it's not too big for one man. It just you have to have the right person. And so on one hand, I am tempted to say, you know, obviously something is wrong with Congress and it maybe it's the system. But there's an argument that Lyndon Johnson is really the only person who ever actually made Congress efficient. It's designed to be inefficient. It's designed to uh, to be gridlock and that LBJ was like the one guy who actually got things done in the Senate. So I, you know, I'm, that's an area where I'm I'm not an expert, but I am. It's a very important question, and 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 it's one that you know we do need to to look into. Well, let's bring this together with your history today and in the past. So if Ronald Reagan were to join us here today, what do you think his take on things would be? What would a Reagan-esque president uh, or Reagan-esque national candidacy, what would it be like? What would it focus on? What okay, should we be looking all, for? Well, first of all, it would be optimistic. Um, it would be optimistic. He would he would believe that we're going to win. Things are going to be great. Believe me. Um, but he would also do it with grace and character and style and dignity, which I think is a contrast to what we have today. Um, I think that he would be tapping into the good things that Trump is tapping into without tapping into the bad things that Trump is tapping into. Um, and I think he would, I think it would be more coherent than what Trump has. I think Reagan would clearly define what couple, two or three things we're going to do are and, uh, uh, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And it wouldn't equivocate it wouldn't necessarily it wouldn't waver on a day-to-day -day basis i don't think reagan would personally be attacking people on twitter um so but, but i think to me the thing you, when you asked the question the the first thing that jumped out to me actually was optimism that he would be and, and so trump taps into that a little bit right things are going to be great believe me um we're going to make america great again and yet, day in and day out, people feel worse about – people actually 
don't really believe it. Most Americans, even though things seem to be going really well, and many, you look at the economy, for example, people just don't seem to be happy and they don't seem to believe that that they're going to have a brighter future, right? And some of it's like there are serious problems. I mean, automation is is going to be an issue. But I think Reagan would find a way through the force of his rhetoric and his personality. And he Reagan gets away with being nice and being civil because of the charisma and the rock star appeal that he also has and the confidence and, and all that. So, you know, it makes me kind of feel warm inside, Jim. Well, Reagan was also incredibly tough that people sometimes forget that today. And that was a big side of him that a lot of folks yeah. didn't no, see he was. until he was it was really too late. Tough. But I think the toughness lets you also be compassionate. Like if, if you're if you're a defensive person who's worried about looking strong, then you can't show compassion. And, and you can't show the sensitive side. But Reagan was, I think, very secure in himself. He knew who he was. He knew what he, he knew he was. He knew he believed what he believed in. He didn't need the presidency. And I think that strength, the fact that he was tough and strong, gave him permission to also be soft when that was what it called for. Um, and that's the kind of that's the kind of masculinity. And by the way, masculinity is a big part of our politics today. It's a big part of Donald Trump. Uh, that's the kind of masculinity that the chivalry that I think that I like, as opposed to the Trump version, which I think is more about bullying than I care for. Well, Matt, that's a good, eloquent note to end on. I hope that you'll agree to come back and do this again in the future. I think there's a lot more we could talk about. Hey, let's let's do it. Let me know, man. I'd love to. Well, Matt Lewis, thank you very much, and thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. Please rate us highly on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at James Strzok, and connect via our website, servetolead.org.